Hello and welcome back for another episode of Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast. Today I have a fascinating conversation lined up with Hobbs Magaray. We're going to be diving deep into the world of regenerative agriculture and ranching, discussing everything from grazing habits to the ecological significance of grazing. We'll also be exploring the impact of social media on the regenerative movement and the complex issues facing American culture and agriculture. So sit back, relax, and let's reboot our thinking about farming, ranching, and food systems. Before we get to that, I want to talk about last week's guest, Justin Harris, and his family soap. I've been using not only their soap, but also their deodorant and their body boost for about three months now. With over 25 different soaps to choose from, you'll always be putting a clean, pure product on your skin made with ingredients you can trust from people we know right here on this podcast. Wild Ass Soap feels great on your skin and washes off clean and leaves you smelling great. From then till my next shower, I depend on my Wild Ass Aluminum-Free Beef Tallow Deodorant. And if you're looking to support a great family and feel clean, smell great, head on over to wildasssoap.com or click the link in the description. And don't forget to use the code REBOOT for 10% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So we get lucky with video and audio today. Yeah. Isn't that exciting? Yeah. How are you, buddy? Oh, dude, I am just beautifully uh, aware of my own impending death. How are you doing? <laughs> well, um, interesting you say that. Um, I can't I can't say I'm mentally in the same place. I, I was kind of having the same thoughts yesterday that, uh, you know, we're all dying just at different rates. But um, yeah, so what what's new? What's new down in Lufkin, Texas area? Oh, I've, everything is being completely recreated 10,000 times a moment, I think. So everything's new all the time. Uh, but in terms of ranching, it's hotter than a motherfucker. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> good good way to start off the podcast. Um, you know, I, I can agree with that. The last couple of days, we've kissed 100 degrees up here, which, you know, last year, it wouldn't have been bad. This year, 100 degrees is miserable because it's actually humid. I, 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 oh, no. Yeah. So it, it's kind of get up at sun, at daybreak and go get your stuff done and get in the house before it gets too hot. Right, <laughs> right. Definitely a, a great uh, excuse to take a little time to rest and relax. Well, there's there's a saying that I like to repeat. And I don't know where it came from, but only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. Well, I guess that makes me an Englishman, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, we're we're kind of that flavor, I suppose. Well, shit, my name is Hobbs. I don't think it gets a whole lot more English than that. Fair point. Fair point. Well, I mean, and my my family surnames are Harwell, Montgomery, Green. Uh, so <laughs> I guess that that makes me a mad dog. Fair enough. Fair enough. Anyway, yeah, man, it's a uh, well. I'm I'm glad that uh, 
you guys look like maybe you've gotten a little bit of rain up there. So that's that's fantastic. Oh, gosh. June has just been. I got you. your phone is uh, it's on the counter. Yeah. My in-laws are in town. Oh, that's fun. I want they're from Spain, so they do whatever they want. <laughs> I'm not going to edit that out. Um, so, yeah, June. June was uh, actually pretty spectacular, to be honest with you. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it, it's been crazy. I think we've gotten nine or ten inches of rain in the last. Dude, I told you it was I told you the rain was coming. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to have faith sometimes. It's really hard to have faith when you're at single digits for, you know, almost 10 months for your rainfall totals. Well, that's why I have to have a community. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, okay. So a little over a month ago, I interviewed a guy named Brian Bledsoe. I, I forget what episode number that was. I had him on a podcast and we recorded on Monday and I released it a week later. And strangely enough, like the day after we recorded, it started raining and it kind of rained for about a month. <laughs> it's, we that's talked awesome. about the, Topped it off with a couple hundred degree days the last two days that, you know, really made the warm season grass pop. I I was driving through some big blue yesterday that was probably 36 to 40 inches tall already. Nice. Yeah. How, how has your land responded compared to others around you? Well, even some pastures that I thought that I used a little heavy kind of through the dormant season have have just they woken up and popped just like everything else on the ranch. Uh, the stuff I used a little bit on the hard side over the winter, it took a few extra days to kind of wake up, but I can't tell a difference now. Um, what do you mean used a little on the hard side through the winter? It just took a little bit too much off. I mean, and, and I know that I say it's, it's hard. You can't really overgraze during the dormant season. Um, but I, I depend on a lot of rain. Not, not a lot of rain, like the fall moisture will grow quite a bit of cool season grass up here, just like it does down there. But when you don't get any and it's colder than normal, none of that cool season grows over the winter. Um, so that kind of hurt. Um, we didn't really supplement a whole lot this winter, either mine or, or, the, or the customer cows I had on the place and they both herds did okay. And we didn't really experience any death loss. Um, you know, everything kind of turned out fine. You know, cows were looking pretty rough there about the middle of May, you know, because we were running out of groceries. And but once it started raining, a couple of days later, the grass came in, started growing. Things turned around, started looking, looking real good. I'd say probably, you know, for where we're at going into the first of July, I'd like to see more of the client cows slicked off. Um, most of mine are, I'd, I'd say I'm most of mine are, are nice and slicked off and shiny by now. Uh, some of the customer cattle are lagging a little bit behind. I'm not sure why try to figure that out, but you know, they'll get there. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I seem to, it seems to be a, a bit of a theme this year. Uh, a lot of folks are having a little harder time getting their cattle to slick off across the board maybe especially the ones who aren't just uh throwing tons of dewormer and supplement at them yeah i i kind of recall back to 2019 you know 2019 was a totally different year for rainfall for me and and, and kind of climate but we had similar forage it was you know it, we had a lot of moisture we had some good growing days 
and I'd say it was a little cooler and cloudier in 19 than it is now, but similar kind of amounts of rainfall, you know, in, the, in this time of growing season and the grass got really washy. Okay. So that, I mean, you've heard that, right? What yeah. does that mean? It means it's just washing through them. It's really liquid. It's, it's going real fast. So how do you fix that? Well, you can either adjust the ration they're eating, jam some more dry matter in them, or if you're doing what we do, move them even faster, which kind of sounds counterintuitive, but that's what seems to work. Interesting. One of the things that uh, Jaime recommended um, was that you don't move the cattle until they're, they've, the sun's been out for four hours so that energy level rises. You know, obviously, you're never going to be able to get that fiber amount up to the, you know, to match the amount of protein in that real washy uh, forage. But if the energy level is a little bit higher, that bricks is a little bit higher, that might help even some things out. That's what he said he was doing um, down in Katy, Texas, when he was managing down there, when um, his owner really pushed him to go hardcore uh, with the his total grazing thing. And all they had was a bunch of ball clover. Um, and they were out of hay. So he was moving these cattle on, onto clover, but he would just wait until the sun been out for four hours. And it helped uh, firm up that uh, stool a little bit, which I had never heard, but I thought was very interesting. And, you know, that's a good little note for me to keep in, in the back of in my hip pocket. Well, while we're while we're here, since you brought it up, let's, you know, timing of moves. Are you, How often are you moving your cows right now? Four times. Four times a day. What what times of day are you moving and why? Uh, sh- right now, since it's so hot outside, I'm just any time in the somewhere between nine and ten, somewhere between eleven and twelve, somewhere between two and three, somewhere between four and five. That's that's my schedule. I I don't I'm not very rigorous because I have a whole lot of other stuff going on in my life, um, so my routine is not exactly right. But I'm the thing that I'm doing right now is I just want to make sure that they get that really high energy, good stuff um, in the in the day and then go back to the shade a little bit satisfied. And then they spend all night cleaning up the rest of it. So I just want to make sure that they get all of the the good stuff that's really high energy uh, throughout the day. And then, you know, in the evening, they're they're cleaning it out. And then at that point, um, or once the hot weather clears, then it's really just about keeping them on kind of a, a semi routine. And once you're moving four times a day, you know, the, the bricks doesn't really matter as much because you're getting the full variability. But if it's not too terribly brutal, I'd rather start them a little bit later um, than uh, earlier, simply because of the fact that, you know, I can catch a little bit more of that uh, high energy level. Have you noticed any diet changes during the day? Like, do they eat different stuff in the morning versus your, you know, early morning versus mid morning versus, you know, afternoon or evening moves? I got them so tight that it uh, it's really non-selective. And so it just doesn't really even, even matter. I will say that um, my butcher animals right now, they're in a pasture with a lot of spiny amaranth, which is a invasive weed but is also of the amaranth family and and in the pastures where it's growing it tends to be much more compacted and uh, they will take all of the grass and clover and there's some cover crops and pearl millet in there they'll obviously hit the pearl millet first which is you know not a mystery but uh, then they'll hit the grass but then overnight they'll clear off all the seed heads of that spiny amaranth and um, so that seems to be the well I mean that would make sense because it will you know, 
the, they get the most bang for their buck on the, the green stuff during the day. And then that really high protein amaranth, which allegedly, um, according to some studies, lowers the cholesterol level in cattle. Um, I uh, that one. Yeah, I, I, I was just reading about it this morning and, and uh, saw a study that summarized some other studies. And, and I don't know how similar spiny amaranth is to the cereal amaranth that they were they were uh, comparing but hey it's probably close enough to have some overlap that'd be my guess yeah and i'd imagine it it's fairly similar similar to palmer amaranth which is what i call pigweed or what people around here call pigweeds uh, it's probably very very closely related to the spiny amaranth that we have down here yeah. probably almost almost the same thing yeah there was a I don't know if you've been following my TikTok lately, but, uh, and, and there, there's something on there I kind of want to talk about, but, uh, cool. The end of that is somebody made a comment like, Oh, cows won't eat those hog weeds. Cows. Oh, I saw that. I saw that. I'm like, Oh, really? Okay. So I took a video two cows, like right less than five minutes after moving into a new paddock, moved out of a paddock. They've been in for three, four days, like 80 cows, 68 acres, Put them in a 16 acre deal and these two are running by grass to go to this palmer amaranth and strip the leaves and the seeds off of it interesting yeah i got a video of it posted it like yeah you're right cows won't eat it right i i don't really see the cattle um i don't really see the cattle going for that first but they sure don't have a problem with it my cows sure don't have a, have a problem with it i am uh i was interested to see that uh, during a little bit earlier in the year that uh, hemlock, the cattle were very, very um, uh, favorable on, on that hemlock as soon as they would go into a, which, you know, allegedly one of the most poisonous plants on the, on the planet. Um, and they're like, oh, thank you very much. And they're smart. You know, they, they'll stop eating at the areas where it's most highly concentrated with the toxin, which is the base of the stem um, and the roots. So they'll leave you know, four to six, maybe eight inches of the stem left and then take everything else. And it's like, well, you know, you almost know what you're doing and knock on wood. I haven't lost any to it uh, this year. I may have lost one last year. She mysterious, she was acting weird and then mysteriously uh, was dead showing signs of convulsion uh, last year, but it wasn't very heavy in the, the hemlock in that area. You know, you know, maybe cows have aneurysms too. I don't know. Sometimes they just lose the will to live, I think. Yeah, so, sudden unexpected death. Yeah. Listening to you talk about, about weed stems and, you know, knowing that you move your cattle off and I move my cattle off. And I think the guys that might have problems with weed toxicity or they're going into a pasture they haven't been for a while and they stay in there too long and the cattle will go back to some of those weeds that, you know, maybe they've eaten the top of and the top wasn't toxic. But if you leave them in there too long, that weed starts to recover and grow, concentrates that toxicity a little bit more to protect itself. Cow comes by and is hungry and is like, oh, that was good last week. I'll take another bite of that today because there's not a whole lot else growing. She takes that bite and starts building up that toxicity. And I think maybe that's where some guys get into problems. You know, there's plants that I've got that, you know, people say, well, cows don't eat or that's toxic. I see him eating them. I mean, yeah, is larkspur toxic? Sure. How much of it does a cow have to eat? About three, four pounds. Like, it's, it's a pretty significant amount. Can a calf get sick and die off larkspur? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's a function of body weight. And it's like toxicity is a function of dose, right? That's what the uh, allegedly. <laughs> you know, so toxicity is a function of dose. I mean, water's toxic. And if you drink too much of it, you can drown yourself. You can you can literally die from drinking too much water. So is water a toxic? Is water a toxin? In certain circumstances, yes. And talk and dose determines toxicity. That's the way I always understand how that works. Well, certainly, um, you have to respect the intelligence of plants. You know, I mean, you you, you throw. A, you hit them with a sudden graze and the plants are like, Oh, unexpected. I wasn't ready for this. And then whoop, they'll, they'll uptake, they'll throw, throw up all of those toxins, you know, just the same way that the brows will do with tannins. And, you know, if you don't move your cows, you're going to get into, you're going to get into that response. I mean, you might call it the responsive phase. You don't want it. You don't want your cattle to be on forage when the, by the time the forage has an opportunity to respond you know, to the grazing. You, you always want it to be a sneak attack, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you want the grass to be thinking that, oh man, I haven't had cows in here for 60 days and I've been having all this time to grow. Then all of a sudden a fleet of hooves comes through and mows the pasture down to two inches high and it's gone in two days. That's right. That's nice. That's, that's, very, that's, that's very nice. I like to think about nature, you know, looking at, um, Imagine a tree looking at the seasons, like if a tree experienced a year in the same way that we experienced a day, you know, just how that would, how psychedelic that would look and how fast it would be changing. And then the lifespan of all of the plants and animals moving around, you know, I imagine that a hummingbird experiences the world much more slowly than we do. You know, have you ever watched a video of a hummingbird in slow motion? Yeah, they're really cool. It's like a, just like a regular you know, it's, it's just like regular activity. I'm looking this way. I'm looking that way, but it's just really super sped up from our perspective. And, you know, who's to say that the trees, um, and other, uh, uh, forms of life that we probably stupidly don't consider to be conscious, don't experience the world in, in a very similar, uh, but different, differently timed way. I've wondered about that too. Like do different, do different things experience the flow of time at different rates? Does that depend on animal size? Does that depend on metabolic rate? Are trees communicating just so slowly because they have such a long lifespan that we can't hear them? Oh, I'm sure they are. I, 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 I believe more time I spend on the land, the more I, I realize that it's everything is conscious. You know, the natives were the native Americans, the indigenous people were totally right that even a rock has, has a form of consciousness. You know, our consciousness is bounded by, you know, our, to some degree, our physical makeup. Um, I, I, you know, certainly can't speak to any more esoteric than that, but, um, but there, just because our consciousness doesn't look like what a rock's consciousness or a plant's consciousness they they're it's absolutely conscious and and the you know the more time you spend on the land the more time you will you will understand that and that's one of the reasons why i think that the land responds so positively to high density grazing simply because it's like a kid when you give them something that you know that they they want and they need they get all excited the land gets all excited when they, it gets what it needs and if you if you put a herd of gra of graziers of great grazing animals over the top of it the land is like well thank you you know, especially at high densities, because this is what it's been wanting genetically. Now, I discovered uh, in reading yesterday or two days ago that dung beetles co-evolved 
alongside dinosaurs. Did you know that? I can believe that. That means that that means that herd effect in grazing is not only older than bison, but also much older than the Pleistocene animals. That's the grazing is older than grass. Grass is fifty million years old. Um, the the proto ruminants, the first you know very uh, primitive ruminant digestive systems are about 50 million years old and dung beetles came around about you know 130 million years ago and so you know what that means that means that dung beetles like anything else expect a good return on their investment so they're not going to be going around looking for sparse manure piles they're they're going to be concentrated in an area with a lot of manure and that means these dinosaurs the herbivore dinosaurs were in herds you know chased around by you know, raptors or whatever, just exactly the same as predators and and uh, or carnivores and herbivores were in in you know our recent history or during the Pleistocene. So, like herd effect is like 150 million years old, and the 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 ecology has evolved over this 150 million years to expect and has the ecology if you consider it to be conscious. It appreciates when you give it its gen- its predetermined genetic expectation of herd activity. And we humans, especially the last hundred years, have not done a very good job of delivering that herd activity that the land, to some degree, consciously expects. You think dung beetles were bigger 150 million years ago? Probably. I mean, a T-Rex poop is probably pretty large and a Stegosaurus poop is probably pretty large. I was, I go to herbivores, grazing herbivores, you know, think, you know, these huge brontosauruses that are like six, 10, six or 10 tons or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, can you just imagine the volume of poo? Oh yeah. That's, it's incredible. And they didn't have grass yet. It was all basically fern based, which is pretty incredible. Uh, and yeah, I mean, uh, dung beetles reveal a lot about, about the history of the past. You know, the one, another thing I was talking about yesterday on TikTok or Instagram or something is like, you know, you you watch Aladdin, the the Disney movie, and and uh, it's all desert and terrible. And then what's the symbol of the thing that opens the cave or whatever? It's the scarab. It's the dung beetle. And it's like dung beetle desert doesn't make sense. The only way that the Egyptians would hold the dung beetle in such high esteem is if that it wasn't desert. So there's no way that ancient Egypt was a desert. You know, I mean, this is I, I haven't looked into this and it's probably um, there's probably lots of great uh, paleontological or an archaeological data on it. But it's it's uh, for in order for a culture to appreciate what the dung beetle does to the point where they deify it, you know, they would have to be going, oh, herds, dung beetles, predators. This is amazing. So, you know, there's probably some like ancient Egyptian Alan Savory out there being like, you know, <laughs> Herd effect is very important. Well, funny, funny you should you should mention him in the Sahara Desert in the same sentence because I believe he has said that the Sahara Desert, maybe not in whole but in part, used to be green and likely turned to desert because of over overgrazing or overfarming and improper land management use. And I and I I think I could understand that. And you know what, what I was sitting here listening to you talk and man, you, you opened up so many, like you showed me so many rabbit holes to trace. Like we could go, we could go run down younger dryas. We could talk about 
dinosaur herd effect. Like that, that's kind of fascinating. I've never really thought about it. And the thinking that I've done in the last oh, several years in the context of dinosaurs and how it relates to what, what you and I do is I realized, or maybe not realized, but I feel that the source of oil, it's not dead dinosaurs decomposing. It's dinosaur poop that was likely cycled into the soil by dung beetles that built thousands of feet of carbon-rich topsoil. Oh, that's super interesting. That was then covered up by volcanic eruptions or meteorite debris, and then those layers were compressed over millions of years, and that carbon-rich soil synthesized into hydrocarbons. Oh, that's see, that's super interesting, man. I I, I find that to be, and the. Let me think about that for a second because it's so awesome. Oh, okay. Well, let me think about this. Like, you, you've got a mind that can grasp large numbers and large systems. The volume of oil that has been extracted compared to the living biomass of all dinosaurs. Like, what's 130 the... trillion barrels. Okay. I'm what... sorry. I don't even know that number. That, that's a fantastic volume of oil to come from living biomass that decayed. That's what I'm, that's what I'm, that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. That's going through my mind right now. It's just, it's, it's mind blowing because it speaks to how much we can actually put into the soil. You know, one of the things Elon Musk is saying right now is like, well, we don't need to look towards farming because uh, we're only uh, the problem is the stuff that's buried deep underground. And now we've released it into the soil. And so that's, extra systemic like it's taken you know we brought in new stuff from the system it's like no actually like i don't think there's any cap on what we can put into the soil like we it's it's probably far far more than we have than we can can consider you know what i want to see um if, if you know like like that if that's true let's let's just follow that let's think that thesis through if that's true and we find that that's the most effective way to build soil which has implications for civilization far beyond just climate change like if we had you know 14 feet uh, like they did in Illinois when the pioneers arrived we could do 14 20 feet of topsoil that means that we can live in an ecology that's so good that we don't have to suffer really like it's my opinion that agriculture was only invented simply because the younger dryas wiped out all of the herd animals and wiped out hum- human beings and killed the ecology so we had to scrape and figure out a way to uh to survive um and so if we if we get our minds oriented towards this towards this notion that the entire ecology is built on grazing and that needs to be our number one most important technology to create a great, great, wonderful ecology. Then the next thing is, okay, well, we got to throw billions and billions of dollars at getting mammoths and mastodons back. And then we got to figure out how to graze them with drones or something so that we have a way of controlling them. Um, Because our brains at this point are too big just to coexist as another animal. And you know that then we then we go to the point of having some uh you know some some amazing technological manhattan project space race for grazing and maybe they, maybe that's what we're at the very beginning of right now so i i mean the that that is such a cool idea that it's actually just topsoil made by dinosaur herds 
in in at at high densities with dung beetles the size of a dachshund you know like <laughs> dung beetles the size of a beetle yeah exactly yeah, like a volkswagen beetle <laughs> now that's a cool idea that's a cool idea i like that a lot so yeah i mean it's it's just it's crazy i mean i i see this i see this everywhere this like to me the the world is such a grazing ecology and when i woke up to this idea you can't see it you can't go around anywhere without without seeing it. And I've been talking about this for a while. And I know other people have talked about it, but it just blows my mind. It's like we're a fish in water who suddenly becomes aware that they're surrounded by water. You know, it's like you turn on the TV and there's somebody playing football and you don't question that it's a flat, uh, you know, it's art, art, artificial tur turf now, but it's like it's a it's a grazed field, you know, like it's it that's a that's a savanna environment that's a herd effect created environment and we're out there playing games on it you can imagine a bunch of like this is what this is the this is a commercial that somebody should do probably like the south african rugby team right since they're the springbok antelope is their uh, mascot okay. they should have like a bunch of bunch of like primitive man you know all scraggly with a loincloth and long beards and hair they they have this like primitive rugby ball right and they and they're walking through the trees and they come out of the trees into this clearing and it's this field right but the grass is all super tall and there's like a lion going through the grass and they're like snakes and stuff and they're like like look at each other like how are we supposed to play this game and then suddenly like this massive herd of animals juga 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 comes through and just grazes the entire field down and then suddenly we have this wonderfully grazed field and then everybody's out there playing rugby or whatever. So like games and culture can like what game that like, I've thought about this also, there's only one game that we play, which is probably the most primitive game that can be played in tall grass. You know what that is? Hide and seek. <laughs> like <laughs> tell me that's the, that's like not some primitive try not to die training right there. Like that's what that is. Clearly, and all the more evolved games than that are played on a freshly grazed surface. Like this is this is so deep to the human condition that we don't even recognize it anymore. Like golf courses, parks, rich people's estates, uh, the median in the highway. Like everything is like we're like, oh, it's fire prevention. Like, well, yeah, but the only reason that we have to prevent the fire is because it's supposed to be grazed. Like it's. It's just that everywhere you see a lawnmower, that should be a grazing animal. Like they're just, it's just our planet is, I think the most important part of the engine that makes our planet go the, is, is the grazing, is the herd. It's just, it's, it's, it's just this big ball of energy moving around, just pushing the whole thing forward. It's like Sisyphus pushing the ball up the hill and then it rolls back down where the grass regrows. And then they push it back up the hill and it rolls back down, the grass regrows. And it's and they're just happy as pie doing it too. So I mean, it's it's the the this planet is a grazing ecology and it's remarkable how pervasive it is. There's gosh, every time you get to go on, there's like you just you keep throwing these cans of worms at me. They go right by. I can't even catch them. Uh, going back to cloning mammoths. All right. It's, oh, I'm not sure I can get behind that. I understand. I, un, I understand what you're saying. I totally understand what you're saying. I've watched Jurassic Park too many times. Yeah. I, and, well, they, see, they didn't have very good drone technology in Jurassic Park. 
But if they'd had good good enough drone technology, they just would have hit those animals with a trank off of a off of a drone and been done with it. I suppose that's fair. But the, the more to the point is once we let that genie out of the bottle, it's out. And there will be there will be misuses of that technology. Okay. Put putting that aside. We know the importance of, of a gut microbiome and the biology, the digestive biology, the microbes that live in the digestive tract of, of not just cattle, but every rumen and animal. I mean, even, even people, right? A significant part of, of our body function and who we are and our role in the ecosystem is determined by our gut microbiome. When we're bringing a cloned animal back from zero, there's there's not that genetic repository of of gut my uh, of the gut microbiome right we're not bringing that back we're just bringing the animal back that houses that gut microbiome and those microbes and maybe if we're going to bring an animal back that's been extinct for 10,000 years maybe that animal just can't can't live anymore because its biology isn't compatible with the with the biology that exists on the planet now. Maybe they don't maybe they would lack critical microbial colonies to be able to adequately use what's available now. Like and and that that's kind of what I'm that's what I'm thinking like okay yeah we can we can clone these animals. We can bring them back to life. We have the technology. We can rebuild him. Awesome. What do they eat? And how many do we have to bring back before we have a suitable genetic reservoir to be able to continue that species without, you know, horrible problems of interbreeding? 120. I mean, yeah, and that's going to be a really expensive endeavor. But aren't they actually, aren't they trying, aren't they doing it right now in Russia? I think they're trying, they've been trying for a while to do that. Um, and, you know, I would, I would say on one hand, I think the, there are so many types of micro microorganisms that that still exist that I think we would probably be able to. I think something would come in and fill that niche. Uh, so there are so many discovered and undiscovered, and also uh, it's possible that I wonder if I wonder if we can analyze uh, what is in there. Um, I wonder if we can analyze any uh, dung or uh, preserved dung to see if there are any bacteria. Uh, remains in there. I, I obviously don't know enough about the science uh, to see if we could do that. But, you know, if we could clone a mammoth, it seems like we could clone uh, some sort of bacteria, although that actually does sound like a terrible idea. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, to some degree, I think it's still worth, you know, worth discussing simply because, you know, the, the uh, elephants exist. Uh, elephants obviously are hindgut fermenters. Um, and I believe the mastodon and mammoth, I think the one of them is a ruminant, one of them is a hindgut fermenter. I can't remember which one is which. But I would be willing to guess that there are enough, there's enough of a variety of, of microorganisms that we could fill those uh, uh, digestive niches. That, that would be my guess. It would be worth trying, but it would be very, and it would also be very educational if it didn't work, you know, so... Uh, I, you know, this is all totally hypothetical, but at the same time, it's, you know, uh, if I, if I had my way about it, 
uh, I would, what I would get to do before I would die would be manage the grazing of a Pleistocene style herd. And then um, hopefully my children would be able to manage grazing in a dome on Mars for terraforming purposes. Now that's, that's the logical extension of herd effect. Cause if, if herd effect is so important to terraforming that it created all of the oil and the, the topsoil, then, then you got to create a, a machine that can give birth to uh, herd animals and feed them autonomously uh, in a dome and to create some sort of proto environment uh, so that they could terraform it. I mean, that would be the fastest way, maybe not the fastest, but it'd be an interesting idea to explore because you know, I don't even really view what we're doing as uh, food production or even grazing or land management. It's terraforming. We're terraforming. Like we live in such a broken ecology that at this point we might as well consider it terraforming. And we should be throwing Elon Musk, NASA, um, Department of Defense level dollars at using herd animals to terraform, but we don't know that it's so it's as it's the most we don't know that it's the most important thing, you know, if we care about staying alive and having a healthy planet. So we don't throw a ton of money at it like we should. No, no, no. They don't throw a ton of money at it because it's not big business. It's well, not. not business. Yeah, certainly. They, haven't, they not, haven't figured out how to structure a business that can extract the maximum federal dollars from the subsidy stream that they can invest in. That's why they haven't done it. Well, it's fundamentally not an extractive business, right? That's one of the fundamental problems with agriculture or, or, or uh, regenerative agriculture versus conventional agriculture. Cause conventional agriculture is a fundamentally extractive business. You know, you're mining the soil in some degree or another regenerative uh, to use that word that doesn't mean anything anymore <laughs> is just seriously, we can talk about that here in a second, but it's like, uh, somebody in Australia the other day used the word hand wavy to describe regenerative. And I thought that was great because it's like, we're regenerative. Well, what does that mean? Well, we follow natural cycles. Well, what does that mean? Uh, we move our cows a lot. Well, what does that mean? Okay. Like, <laughs> that's nice. So I think we've jumped the shark on, on regenerative, but uh, regenerative uh, agriculture is a fundamentally non-extractive. It's a, it's a symbiotically extractive uh, endeavor. And so there, the profit margin, like we as organisms, we find a surplus, we exploit it, and then we move on to another surplus. I mean, this is like the, this is the first time that our modern civilization has, has said, and I say modern civilization because various indigenous people have, you know, had a much better understanding of this for a long time. But our modern, this is the first time our, our modern consciousness has gone, you know what, maybe we should stop just extracting because eventually we're going to run out of stuff to extract. And that fundamentally doesn't really work in the business model that is predominant on, on the planet because capitalism is built on the resource, uh, the extraction, exploitation of natural resources. And I don't mean to se seem like a communist because I think there is uh, a great degree of envy and um, uh, uh, lower angels that are, uh, that are associated with uh, communism and, and neo-Marxism and, and striving to accomplish things and striving to achieve and having ambition is a great thing, but also recognizing that we have to live symbiotically with the planet is it's important also to recognize that in, in that modern capitalism exists in antagonism to the symbiosis of existing on this planet.
Okay. Got some thoughts there for you. Can't wait. Capitalism is built on an, on an exploitive extractive structure. And so I, I had a, had a good conversation with, uh, with culture DeVries on our ranch investor podcast. I think it comes out like next week. So go, go listen to that. Um, their whole thing is about like trying to democratize land ownership and you know, it, it, it goes deeper than that. And I know you and I have talked before about that. There's changes coming in the land ownership pattern. Like, you know, the, the average age of people involved in quote farming keeps going up. Well, most of those people that are really old involved in quote farming are just absentee landowners that are just getting really old and that land's getting ready to turn over. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of operators that are kind of old too, that are getting ready to turn over. And we're facing a lot of turnover in the next few years in land ownership. And hopefully that'll come with land use patterns. And it, to a large degree, I think some of the you know extractive, exploitive practices in agriculture are going to continue. Like we're not going to see the end of feedlots. We're not going to see the end of corn, soybean, and cotton farming and monocrop agriculture with you know bare soil for nine months out of the year. Maybe you and I will live long enough to see the end of that. I hope so. But what I'm getting at is, you know. There, well, there's something else we've talked about before on a podcast. It's about, you know, being in a position where your owner, where your owner, manager, and labor on your operation, which you and I both are, right? If we want to do something dumb or we want to try to graze a different way, okay, that's a management decision. Management doesn't have to convince ownership that it's a good idea. And management doesn't have to convince labor that it's a good idea and that this is how it needs to be done. We just go do it. Right. But when you're facing a situation, like probably the majority of folks in agriculture are where they're trying to make a living on leased land with an absentee landowner, that's far divorced from the management consequences and just wants their check every year because they're depending on that rental income, whether it's a cash rent or a share crop basis, they're probably depending on that income in some way, shape or form. And if you tell them, hey, I'm going to change the way I farm, it's going to hurt yields for a couple of years. So instead of 2000 you're going to get 1500 bucks, but it'll be better later and it's going to cut my costs. Probably going to say, no, you need, no, you need to keep paying that because we need that money. I don't know for sure, but I'm sure that that's what drives a lot of it. Or just management can't articulate to the absentee ownership, the value of, of, of more regenerative practices or of less soil destroying practices, really. It can be hard to get absentee landowners to see the value in that, especially if they think it's going to cost them income. So the other big thing is inflation, cost of doing business and the value of production of the land. You know, your land can only support so many cattle. If fuel goes to $8, if labor goes to $50 an hour, milk goes to 10, bread goes to 10, your land doesn't get to support more cattle, does it? Right? Well, I mean, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the problem we're running into is I don't think there's anywhere you can go anymore in the country 
and buy land and pay for it with cattle. Like there might be some very isolated examples. I think it's even problematic to go anywhere west of 35 and and try to do any kind of any kind of farming or ranching without multi-species grazing. I'll tell you where it works. Actually, we've done the models on this. There are a couple of things that I want to talk about. This um, here, I'll, I'll let the I'll let the cat out of the bag. Like the 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 what's what's happening right now is that as you have probably seen, probably behind the scenes, is that you know uh, institutional money is being thrown at people who have a, a name uh, out there in the regenerative world, and so anybody who has the capacity to graze well. If you position yourself properly, you can have you can start a ranch investment fund and you can have institutional money throwing themselves at you, you know, and so that's how, you know, it's I, I, so many of the grazing Here's what, so many of the grazing gurus out there. Like we just want to be liked by everybody and we want people to think we're smart and we want to help other people change the way that they graze. And so we'd be influential, like, fuck that. No, that's not going to work. The best way to do it is to accumulate as much institutional money as you can, buy as many ranches as you can, create systems to scale what you do, and then do it. It's not going to work west of, as you said, 35. It's not going to work west of the 100th meridian. That's all rich people who want to have views of the Rocky Mountains or whatever. You know, that's, that's fine. Let them do that. That, 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 era of ranching is dead as far as i'm concerned the ranching in the american west is is a dying thing it needs to be it needs to be done but as a lucrative business opportunity like that's out because that 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 area has been mined and does not does no no longer supports the labor unit metrics uh or and especially the the stocking rate to um to be colorado uh, river and the ogallala aquifer cannot support it yeah, that's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, all of those ranches out there are completely dependent upon diesel, which is, uh, as you as you know, are in uh, m- most ranches are. But here in the in the southeast and anywhere basically to the east of 35, uh, you can you can get into that uh, one animal per acre, one animal every two acres. Uh, if you're using the properly framed and properly genetically adapted animals. You know, so to me, all of the opportunity is in the Sun Belt. I think that's where all of the ranch investment opportunities. And there's also so much timber there that shouldn't be timber. Like it should be savannas. So one of the things that we're looking at and we is a group of people that I've been working at is like, why why don't we just buy a bunch of timber land, cut out the, you know, cut out the ideal savanna that we want, sell off that timber and then you have the great ranches of the 21st century. Like to me, the great ranches of the 21st century are waiting to be cut out of the pine belt that is not that is supposed to be pine savanna. And, and that's where you can get that one uh, to two acres per cow. That's where you can get those really high stocking rates. That's where you can graze year round. And if you really efficiently use protein supplement, you can, you know, you don't need to use much hay at all. You know, you get 40 plus inches of, of rain per year. You know, you get even when it's dry, like here, low of 77, uh, high of 100 for the last week. It's there's still dew on the grass in the morning because there, there's just so much moisture, you know. So that's where the opportunity is in terms of investing in ranching and investing in money. So or in, investing in ranching, investing in land. So the, the you know, the to me, uh, the the. Popularization of Yellowstone is the 
the indication that ranching in the American West ha has reached its zenith and is now on the denouement. And uh, so I think that what's going to happen very, very soon is that as ranching shifts from a protein supply endeavor to an eco-management endeavor that happens to produce protein as a, as a waste product, people are going to be looking at things from a very, very different zeitgeist. Um, and I think that that's going to open up a lot of possibilities. And especially as people begin to learn that and begin to understand that savanna is a much more, especially if we can prove out your dinosaur poop soil dung beetle theory, um, that savanna is a far more productive uh, ecological system than than closed-in forests, then the the American Southeast suddenly becomes the richest possible place to to create um, healthy functioning ecologies. Yep, i I take the Stockman grass farmer, and I have for years. Um, I mean, way back even before Alan Nation left us, and somebody else that's not with us anymore. Um, I think it was Gordon Hazard said this that the land east of the Mississippi is so productive that if used holistically and correctly to graze livestock, we wouldn't need to have a single bovine west of, west of the Mississippi River. We wouldn't need it, but we would want it to, <laughs> to keep to True. make sure we're managing. Yeah, to point taken though, you know, it's like any any of that land is just profoundly productive, uh, but if used properly, but is so uh missing in, in nutrients right now because it's all been sucked up by uh pine trees you know so the problem with having absentee ownership or distributed ownership group and i i, I hate to keep going back to this no that's great is there has to be some kind of shared stewardship vision or shared ecological vision that's totally bought into by the owner partners or at least, you know, the 80% majority of them without, without, I think without clear ecological goals, you know, then things just become about profit. And, you know, I, I'm starting to think more and more that I'm not, I'm not a capitalist. I'm not a socialist, of course, but I'm not a capitalist because there's a, there has to be a limit. There has to be limits placed on extractive processes you know we're not going to stop pumping oil just like we're not going to stop kfos overnight we're not going to stop pumping oil even with all the electrification they want to do our system is built on certain things and you know okay we want to electrify the power grid we want to electrify we want to put all electric cars on the road great we're still a long way from electric mining machines and electric you know, electric construction equipment. We're a long way from that. We're a long way from having, you know, effective electric transport links. We're a long way from, you know, being able to process all that stuff. And we're really far away from having it all found that we need, like the raw materials. Right. Yeah. And it's going to de definitely going to take some big technological breakthroughs, especially in battery storage to get there. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely... Things are, things are, there are, there are challenges, but you know, the opportunities are, are certainly uh, ahead of us as well. Uh, going back to the distributed ownership thing, I think this is why it's so important to 
And this, this is why I mentioned in the beginning that anybody who has a name in the regenerative world, who's, who has been so moved to go out on social media and create a, a brand for themselves, whether, uh, deliberately or just as a result of the effort that they've been doing has to be the center of a sort of distributed ownership uh, distributed ownership model because they are the people who can create or to define to articulate an animating principle from which this business can spring you know and and that that is very very important that's one of the things that we can actually learn very uh, beautifully from the capitalists you know the, the Henry Fords uh, of the world uh, you know, it's like you if you can articulate a vision that people can get behind, then you have the capacity to really grow and scale what you do. Uh, so, I mean, that's really that's really the goal. And and so uh, I think that's one of the things probably that the holistic management system does very well um, uh, is is creates uh, a, a set of goals and that you can always sort of uh, cross check what you're doing through. And so that and that's certainly nice. Um, Obviously, it does have the capacity at times to break down into, you know, holistic, holistic decision making can break down into holistic indecision making. That's uh, a Johann Zietzman uh, criticism. And uh, so but, you know, I that obviously every uh, system of analysis is is going to constantly require rework. Uh, that's why Zietzman loves uh, his you no know, his idea constantly just goes back to maximize sustainable profit per acre. And if you if you want to put a more ecological spin on that, it becomes uh, maximize carbon sequestration, sustainable carbon sequestration per acre. Because if you're doing that, that means that you're grazing better, you're growing more animals, you're growing more forage, and everything carbon becomes the one metric that everything stems from. And so if you're maximizing the carbon sequestration per acre in a savanna environment, then that means you're profiting more. That means you're growing more forage. Uh, on a sustainable level, obviously, we all know that we can just level our property and make a little bit more money this year. But uh, on a sustainable level, that's you know uh, a different a different analysis. So it's really important, I think, for for the people who, if you have uh, some charisma, if you have the ability, like yourself, to go forth and you know put yourself out on social media, get a bit of a following, make a podcast, make a name for yourself. And be the person who can answer all the questions about how things ought to operate and give a detailed and well thought out response uh, to the vision and to questions about the vision, then those are the kind of people who that who investment bankers should should get behind and in, in venture capitalists, institutional people. Um, pretty soon what's going to happen in, in my view is that uh, institutional I and mean, it's already happening right now. Institutional money is running out of people to throw money at. And so anybody who pops their head up and go goes, ooh, I do regenerative ranching, uh, institutional money is like, here, have some, have some money, you know, and even if they're not uh, any good at it. And we've, we've reached the point of saturation, which, by the way, you and I have watched, you know, the uh, like TikTok I, and the- waiting on them to throw money at me. And if anybody's out there listening, any institutional money that, you know, just wants to float my way, my email is redhillsrancher at gmail.com. Um, email me and we'll talk. We'll make some. Well, what, what is uh, like? Uh, what is your like? What's what would your vision be for that? Um. Oh, I like, like I if mean, someone gave you twenty million dollars uh, tomorrow and you had to come up with a plan for it. What would you do? Twenty million? 
Yeah. Okay. It's twenty million dollars. Like, we can knock a zero off. Like that's that's a little more realistic number. Like twenty million, I'd go buy another ranch. But two, I mean, there'd be a lot of stuff here that I'd fix. I mean, I've got I've got some deferred maintenance stacked up. There's some projects that I want to do. Um, first would be to develop my west side, the water systems, the fence, um, everything I want to do. That's probably only about quarter mil to three hundred thousand all in. Um, I want to tear out about three and a half miles of, of woven wire fence. That's over a hundred years old and replace it with a more wildlife friendly five wire barbed wire fence. Um, okay. Right. But okay. Let's think about this a little bit from a a little bit bigger. Right. So imagine if you had say $20 million, you could buy three more ranches in in various parts. You could create a, a, a system of, of operating procedures. And then as that land appreciates, you can use that money to then to reinvest in the properties. And then you have, then all of those properties are slowly, slowly, slowly getting better. And if you raise enough money, then you can do those infrastructure, uh, projects right up front. And the thing that people are going to love about these investment opportunities is there, there's a, it's not a tech company. You're not going to throw away $20 million on a, a blood test that doesn't work. Uh, you know, it's, you, you still have an asset to back to backstop if, if you flame out. And so it's like, it's a huge opportunity right now. And so, uh, so yeah, if anybody, I think that if there's anybody out there uh, who is really in venture capital land looking to spend $20 million, yeah, go talk to Red Hills Rancher. I'm sure he'd come up with a good plan for you. Um, so I, I, that, well, anybody, let's, 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 I, I hate to interrupt you because I know no, you're going to roll, please. but that plays into carbon and you yeah. and I, we, both of us have said this and we agree on it completely that grass fed beef will be a byproduct of the carbon sequestration industry. And that's what we're really talking about here. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think about it as a waste product, just to clear, just to get my head completely in the ecological zone, but byproduct, waste product, same, same thing. Right. And, you know, we've talked about dung beetles and I, and it'd be really cool to go back to, I don't know, six or 8,000 years ago, probably long enough after younger driest that civilizations kind of had a, had a chance to, to reestablish and biology kind of, you know, got stable and climate kind of got stable. I think six to 8,000 years ago, Egypt and the Sahara desert looked completely different. Yeah, totally. And I'd really, I really want to understand why they held the scarab, the dung beetle in such high reverence and what their, and how they got there, what their dogma was to get there. Right. And I, I've been sitting here kind of rolling that around in the back of my head. And if we postulate the carbon is the most important thing on the planet, it's the most important element to keep cycling, to keep moving in the environment. Scarab, dung beetle, kind of the same thing. They take biomass that's no longer alive and they transport it, you know, they they upcycle it and they transport it to the subsurface underneath the soil. How much carbon's in that in that poop ball? Probably a little bit. How much carbon's in a million poop balls? A lot. So it's not just the actions of the one, it's the actions of 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 the many that you know that really drive the thing. So did the Egyptians just see it as something that was really awesome that could recycle anything? Or did they understand that it was a critical link in the biology of the world to recycle nutrients back into the soil? 
that's what I'd really like to understand. Well, it's conventionally translated or, or understood to be as as uh, meaning rebirth, or you know, so I that would uh, or being a symbol of rebirth, uh, and so I I would that would lead me to believe that they had a more abstract understanding of the value of it. Cause you can, you know, you can imagine that six to 8,000 years ago, they've started agriculture. They know the value of mixing poop with soil and growing stuff out of it. And then they look out at these herds moving around and they're like, Oh, those are dung beetles that are doing it just because like that's so clearly there's something very reverent ab- about that, you know, and, and without the dung beetles, it just doesn't work. It just sits on the land, you know, obviously, and doesn't get recycled, doesn't get put in the ground, doesn't aerate the ground. What a, what a tremendous service they're doing with aeration, getting rid of fly larvae, um, water infiltration, um, the, get, getting rid of that poop, um, fertilization, just just an incredible. And they, and they probably recognize that the dung beetle is doing all of these things at once. It's a, it's a profoundly elegant uh, mechanism in the in the ecology. You know, uh, ruminant digestion with the 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 hoof impact, as well as the fertilization, as well as the saliva, as well as the urine. Very very elegant uh, mechanism from one from one source. Dung beetles, very elegant mechanism from one source. You know, and and uh, I would I would be willing to believe that they understood far more uh, whether it is a result of their renewed understanding after the horror of the younger Dryas or as a relic of the probably advanced global uh, civilization that existed before the younger Dryas, which probably had an even more, uh, evolved understanding of, of the course of biology. Like imagine a global advanced society that got to watch the majesty of herds with mammoths and mastodons and you know the american lion uh all kinds of terrifying shit um just this like the herd would be such a force of nature that we can't even conceive of today uh i think that they probably watched that in awe in as a uh um, in in a pre uh, younger dry situation and to some degree maybe that held over into a post younger Dryas, and then maybe they also rediscovered it. I'm I'm not sure, but I I certainly am appreciating dung beetles more and more every day. And if there was a dung beetle that that was, I, I would be fascinated for somebody to dig an old dung beetle out of the rocks that it's this big. You know, imagine the holes that they could dig and the the water infiltration and the soil and you know the amount of carbon put down there. Oh man, you blew my mind with that, dude. I love that so much. But dinosaur herd effect, man. It's like it's not it's not even I you know, I, I thought I was so smart uh when I realized and was thinking so far so much more about the Pleistocene and these big herd animals that then when I saw the dung beetle co-evolved alongside the dinosaurs, I was just like, well, those are animals that dwarf the mastodons and mammoths. Like that it's like bronto a herd of brontosaurus like <laughs> Like we're we're just mice running around here playing pretend with these tiny ass little cattle. Like we're we're influencing the planet, you know. <laughs> it's just remarkable. It's like this is the best we got, but uh, so this is why we got to do it as effectively as possible. Wow. Yeah, i I talked to uh, my friend Russ Conzer about my my theory about that it was 
dinosaur poop and carbon rich soil that got compressed to make oil reserves. And he pretty, this guy worked for Shell for like 30 years. And he pretty much said, yeah, that's right. But we never explain it that way because nobody understands it. People just can't grasp it. Interesting. Okay, I get that. So that's why they just say it's dead dinosaurs. But I, I, I've never, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I mean, so we're, we've talked about younger dryas, which, you know, a lot of people's gateway drug to the younger dryas is the Alaska Boneyard. Oh, interesting. You know what I'm talking about there? I've heard Russell Carlson m- mention it. My gateway was Graham Han- Hancock and Russell Carlson on, um, uh, on Joe Rogan, but okay. also to to some degree, uh, uh, Savannah by Nate Chisholm was also an introduction. Although he is dead wrong on what killed off all of the uh, the large ruminants. Next time I talk to him, I'll have to tell him you said that. Yeah, he's wrong about. <laughs> I mean, maybe he's changed his mind, but like, if there were f- if there were four million people and four and four million uh, mammoths on uh, estimated to be in North America at the same time, then they'd just have to be going around you know, just killing all the mammoths for no reason. And also why are all of the, uh, why are all of the megafauna still in, still existent extant in places that don't have the microspherules and the nano diamonds from the, the overlay pattern of the impacts from the younger dryas exactly mirrors where, where uh, megafauna, it no longer exists. So the, so, and he's all, and Jaime's going around teaching that now too. That uh, that we that humans killed off all of the megafauna. I'm like, I told him that in, in uh, Arkansas. I was like, dude, it just, no. And he's like, and he goes, he's like, I have studied it. <laughs> okay, Jaime. <laughs> so the uh, the Alaska Boneyard, it's a it's a place up by Fairbanks, Alaska, and it was another Joe Rogan episode. I think the guy's name is John Reeves. If you okay. just search Joe Rogan Alaska Boneyard, I guarantee it'll come up. It's, it's right at three hours and it's one of the best ones. Like it's, it's spectacular. Um, so the moral of the story is, is they do a lot of what's called hydraulic mining. They use like a big eight inch water monitor to blast away permafrost and, and see what's there. They found a spot. It's like, it's like 15 minutes outside of Fairbanks. There's been mining all around it, but they found a spot and they started pulling fossils out of it and they've pulled tens of thousands of fossils out of a four and a half acre site wow so here's my theory of of how they all concentrated there that this was a younger dryas extinction event and then as as the as the debris fell from the sky and heated up all the glaciers and the snow and the ice and started fires it pushed these animals down you know into these valleys and then a huge flood came with mud and packed them all up in like into like a little corner on the of bend or something. And that's where they all are. So, I mean, that's consistent with what Graham Hancock says with, there was a large heat event, melted a lot of polar ice, you know, met, you know, global fires killed off all the vegetation. And like, how do you, how do tens of thousands of different animals all end up in one spot? Well, they didn't all just magically go there. I mean, now, yeah, you can put a corn feeder out and get all kinds of crap to come to it. But 12,000 years ago, we didn't have corn feeders. Like, we didn't have a salt lick. So why did they all, why are they all concentrated there? Well, they all had to have been washed there, pushed there somehow. Flash melt. Flash melt. Yeah. And that means, 
and to collect like that many animals, I think like, you know, tens of thousands of, of, you know, these giant bison and American lions and, you know, woolly mammoths and all these, you know, huge animals that are extinct now, they all ended up in one little spot. I think there's a lot. I think there's, I think that younger Dryas impact event and that time frame about 12,000 years ago. I think we're going to start learning a lot more about it as people get interested and start digging into it and challenge the mainstream science. And as the old archaeologists die off. Right. The old tenured archaeologists that won't let anybody argue with them because their entire career is built on something that's wrong. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Certainly. And uh, one, one thing that I've been thinking about recently, if you look at the, the, uh, the fossils of, of bison, like what we have today are very small bison compared to what existed previously. And that's because the forage sucked. And we know that small framed animals do better on low quality forage. So the younger dryas comes around, it toasts, a, a, it puts, it puts a, uh, basically a nuclear winter on the whole planet for a thousand years. What does that mean? It means the forage is going to suck for a thousand years. And what does that mean? The smaller bison are the ones that are going to survive on the shit. They're going to be in better uh, body condition on, on uh, shittier forage. So it's going to self-select over a thousand years for smaller bison. So that that's my theory on why bison are so small today is because they're, they, they can, the small frame can only could as the only frame that could support those, those smaller animals. That tracks. Corrientes weigh six to eight hundred pounds, and they've got what four hundred years of of natural selection and adaptation in North America and the desert Southwest to hot climates with poor forage. That that definitely tracks. Yeah, so it'd be uh, so it's it's a, it's it's a potentially we're entering into a golden age of archaeological understanding that is going to shift our understanding of the ecology um, and what we're experiencing right now in our culture. You know, uh, uh, planet wide is the is the the hangover of the height, probably 60s and 70s, 80s, maybe 90s, is the height of exploit, exploitative, extractive, materialist consumption that uh, that we could characterize as human human parasitical behavior. And right now we are, I mean, that's not all that we are, but I think that was more expressed through the last hundred years, you know, especially as we figured out how to turn uh, fossil fuel into energy. Um, I think that was far more ex expressed. And now we're in the hangover of that stage and we're, we're shifting into a far more symbiotic existence planet wide. And I think that's why we're seeing so much insanity happening in our world right now from the individual level up to the geopolitical level is because we're all in this weird hangover of, materialism and we don't know what to do and during during this giant hundred year long party we lost who we were and we lost our values and you know as, as you know that's what nietzsche said god is dead you know obviously he was any of us who listen to jordan peterson know that he was saying that uh, that just means that we're losing sorry the uh the the guy somebody's mowing outside hopefully you can't hear too much we're just losing the our our value systems that ha that helped us make sense of the world around us and now we're like lost children in times square like all right hang on one second where he is literally weed eating right outside my window can hey, you hear that no no you're good oh, man fantastic okay so yeah i mean cool awesome I'm very grateful that he's out there weed eating. Just hard to concentrate. Um, 
anyway, so yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think that we're entering this this period where, and especially since our leaders are 70 and 80 years old, they're still stuck in this weird extractive exploitative mindset of like, we have to win the great game and the great Eurasian war. If we're going to, you know, be able to survive in the next, next hundred years. Um, and the rest of us are like, how about I just do a homestead? You know, it's like, can I just, can I just maybe have some chickens and sell some eggs to my neighbors without the government getting involved? Right. And, and to some degree, those of us who have, um, have a little bit of a reach it's then becomes our responsibility to reach out and grab a hold of these old levers of power that are that are existing that are that you might call venture capital or institutional funds or things like that to go ahead and while the while the getting is good to grab onto all of these assets that we possibly can so we can put our fingerprint on it and then while knowing that we're going to lose them over time set them on track to then be um self-sufficient or more regionally based or more managed more in line with a more symbiotic existence and i know that makes me sound like a hippie but that's not really what i mean i what i wanted it's like a um call it a harakiri capitalist or something like that you know i just want to do as best i can and then turn it back over to the next generation you know, right now we're definitely in a time where we are in the grips of the last generation holding on with a death grip as long as they possibly can. You know, like the millennial generation is like we have we have just in terms of the share of wealth uh, that that the millennial generation is holding on to at this stage compared to, say, the boomers at, at this stage in their life is like a, a 10, 10, 15 or 20 percent of what of what they held. So it makes perfect sense that the millennials are looking for an out and they want to uh, exit, exit the system, get off the, right. they want to the exit treadmill, the system. get out of the rat race. And I think that there's a lot of millennials and even what's the one after them, Gen Z zoomers, the millennials and the zoomers see the truth of the system for what it is like legacy media platforms that, that you and I and the boomers are still successful susceptible to they don't care about them they're not listening to them like cnn fox news abc cbs nbc nobody listens to them anymore nobody watches them more right. people get their news from joe rogan than headline than than all the major networks combined like i think tucker carlson's show on youtube had like an average of two million views a night that's like eight times more than he was getting on Fox News. Yeah, it's incredible. And, you know, they these leg legacy media outlets are only still relevant because of legacy subscribers. People like like accounts at airports, like at bars, people that have CNN or headline news as part of a dish or direct TV package. That's where most of their subscribers are. Like, yeah, that's they know it's going away. Print magazines, have you noticed print magazines have all but disappeared and the ones that are left are shrinking? No, I mean, I haven't paid attention to that. I just, uh, the only print magazines that I see are in the poison section of the, uh, the poison section of the grocery store, which is what I call the section that's right before checkout. You know, you get to the, you get to the checkout and they have print magazines and, and candy. And I always tell my, I always tell my kids, 
You know how they get rat poison? You know how they get rats to eat rat poison? <laughs> they make it taste good, right? So that's, I mean, that's that's the poison section. And, 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 and to some degree, it's interesting because that that means, and I agree with uh, with with the fact that that I would I would venture to say that print print media and legacy media is is poison to the mind the same way that the that our processed foods are poison to the body. You know, we have processed information and we have processed foods. What we need is unprocessed information and allow ourselves to process it. And we need unprocessed foods and allow ourselves to process it so that we can have a more organic relationship with the fabric of reality. You know, I like that. I like that processed information analogy. That's really good. Oh, cool. Yeah, right on, man. And but I think that there's also an interesting thing that, you know, the the Gen Xers and the older millennials, I guess they're calling themselves elder millennials, you know, in order to feel more important, uh, which I'm I'm one of those. We are still in that in-between phase, you know, that last generation that grew up before the Internet. Uh, I had probably my first computer with Internet access when I was 12. So, I, you know, most of my psychological formation happened so prior. We're going to be that there, there's a weird half generation right? that grew up with computers. Like we got computers like Apple II's. Like our first experience to Apple II's were in like grade school to middle school. Right. And then by the time we got out of high school, there there were Pentiums and internet. Like we started school, computers weren't even a thing. Calculators were barely, barely a thing. And we end up graduating with the internet. Like, right. The, the, and this, there's just about like four to six years of us in there. Because before that, the, the people that are just like, see, it's 2023. If you are 47 to 48 years old, you missed it. If you are... 40, uh, 38 or younger, you grew up, you, you've always had computers and you've always had internet. It's, it's just that like those of us in the 38 to 48, we didn't get it. Like we had to well, grow up with it and we saw it. I'm almost 37, but, uh, I grew up in the panhandle of Texas. So you, so everything arrives there two years later anyway. So right, right. I'll put myself, <laughs> I'll put myself in that category. So, so yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I think if you take that metaphor, um, uh, a little bit farther than we find ourselves in that weird little half generation being the being necessarily the bridge culturally between the people who are older and the people who are younger. And that, that goes back. I mean, obviously I'll take it back to, to the topic that I was discussing earlier being the, the half generation that has to utilize those older levers of, of, of financial power and influence. And then, aggregate those those assets and then distribute them in a way that is more in line with the consciousness of the younger generation so for instance like if i if i'm able to put together three or four ranches with 20 million dollars um what am i going to do i'm not going to go i'm not going to go put an ad on ranch world ads and hire somebody who's been you know a uh, doctor in calves since they were you know 15 i'm going to find somebody uh, whose email or sending me direct messages on TikTok, being like, I don't really know anything about ranching, um, but I find what you're doing fascinating, and I want that to be my life. Like, that's like th those are the people that I'm going to farm out into other little areas like that. Obviously, having some stock sense is important, you know, and it's going to be, and if if the if the horseback element was necessary 
to what we were doing, which it's not, I don't think, in the American Southeast because of the densities you can achieve. Um, That would be a different story. You kind of have to grow up in that culture to have a really attuned horse sense. You know, it's like the Mongolian horse people or or anything like that. The American cowboy is one of the great horse cultures of, 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 of history, you know. Um, be be careful with that because i think there's a lot of people that would self-identify as cowboy that don't have very good horse sense right you and i know what we're talking about though <laughs> yeah yeah those kids those kids who are handy in a, in a brandon pen at nine years old kind of thing you know that that kind of deal like that's that's a different like my granddad was one of those people i'm not one of those people you know i spent my summers during college uh riding colts uh for a ranch that he used to manage in the panhandle and you know, I'm better than 98% of, of, uh, Americans at, at, at horsemanship. And I can't hold a flame to what those guys do. You know, they're just, they're incredible. Um, and, uh, but. Oh, it's it, a low bar for entry. It's an easy skill to learn, but one that, that you can't even master in a lifetime. Right. It's just the, the guys who are, the guys who are great at it. It's just. And that's and that's something that I had to give up on. I think it's probably one of the things that has allowed me to really embrace the ecological side of it is that you know I I didn't start early enough and I didn't love it enough to really become one of those guys. Um, so being a shitty cowboy or a half-assed cowboy is is was my path to being a successful grazier. I think so. You know, moving forward as we as we find a way if we can grab all of these assets and start to disseminate them in a way that is more in line with the, the consciousness of the next generation. I think that's one of the advantages of the American Southeast because, you know, you can just go roll, roll up a reel and your super chill cows are just going to saunter into the next, into the next paddock, you know, instead of having to go, you know, chase down something in the Arizona mountains, you know, and then, uh, and then dally it up right next to your, horse and then take it down three miles so you can get to the trailer like like that's though that's a different breed that's a different world you know that's <laughs> those guys those guys are are, are badasses in the in a completely different right so um yeah i i just think that uh they have their own they have their own culture and that's that's this and i find myself a, you know a descendant of that culture but kind of outside of it because i was never very very close to it you know i was i existed tangent to that culture you know my some some of my cousins are in that culture um so my granddad was in that culture and um i find that to some degree that's one of the last uh undomesticated uh they're probably the last undomesticated americans the the real western ranch folks you know the um I think undomesticated is is a good way to to describe those folks who just fiercely, fiercely independent, and they will be around to carry their tradition as long as it's around, certainly. But the new era of ranching is going to, as we've discussed previously, is going to begin erupting in the eastern side of of the country, especially in in the in the southeast, and and then maybe it'll continue to start spreading west. I'm seeing ranches in New Mexico and Colorado. All these places start to really get into cross fencing their sections, and and eventually we're going to be at the the point where the only parts of the world that are, are, are the of, of the United States that aren't cross fenced in say single wire high tensile are going to be way up in the mountains where it's just you can't get in the, get in there in the winter probably, and then farm ground 
So I think that's going to constantly expand, but I think the nexus has to take place in an areas where you can get one, two acres per cow. So you can really get a return on that investment, develop those technologies, develop that experience, develop that high density grazing culture, and it'll spread from there. Okay. I mean, I, I can kind of, I can kind of see that. I can see your future. I, I struggle with what, what would happen on the Great Plains, you know, with the, with all the circles of corn and soybeans and all the feedlots, all the huge dairies. Like, it's just so strange that the panhandle of Texas is one of the largest milk producing regions in the world. It's really strange. Why is that? It's not because, because it, you know really rich grass grows there because it's a great climate for dairy cows. It's because it's a good climate for a feedlot. It's a good climate for a feedlot. It's right next to the Ogallala aquifer that they can pump onto these uh, uh, these these farm fields, and it's about four hours north of um, you know one of the biggest oil producing regions on the planet. Um, obviously I don't know, it's probably not all refined there, but you're right. It's a great, great area for a feedlot. It's uh, and I, you know, to be perfectly honest, I think feedlots are going away. I think by 2050, they'll be illegal. Um, they'll be sunsetted and the, the ecological costs will be laid bare. The, uh, See, I'll the, be 70 years old. Uh, well, that's, that's an estimation. It could be faster, but I think, uh, ecologically and ethically people won't tolerate it anymore, especially if we keep having, uh, 18,000 cows die up, dot burn up and die in, in one single sitting where they are cooped up in one barn sitting on top of an area that used to be teeming with ruminant wildlife, uh, in, and on top of a, a pristine natural prairie. You know, that's, I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the, the long-term horror of that in my view is that, you know, we've confined these animals, removed them from their ecological, uh, task in an area that used to be an unbelievable, unbelievable biodiverse area of biodiversity. Well, well, let's, let's just see here in the last year, the stories that have come out of, of big CAFOs. So like you just mentioned, 18,000 head, that was a dairy barn fire. Um, there was also one, the heat burst, quote, heat burst a year ago, right at a year ago. Right. I remember that. That killed like eight or 10,000 in Western Kansas. Okay. There may or may not have been a water system that went down during that time period. But regardless. <laughs> regardless, you know. We there was um there was a bad there were bad floods around the Hereford area, Hereford Canyon area. A couple. Like, I used to live. Month. I had a two. Uh, you know, I grew up on a small ranch, um, on the Tierra Blanca Creek that flows from Hereford, where it, where it starts on the other side of Hereford, goes through Hereford, and then through Canyon to into the Paladero Canyon. Okay, and then you know our ranch was situated on the Tierra Blanc Creek. And so I know that area very well. And when I was there, uh, between me and Hereford is the Buff is Buffalo Lake National Wildlife Refuge. And that lake was dead. And you can imagine why. Oh, probably. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. But there, well, what I was getting at is like due to all the rain that they've had since the middle of May in that area, 
and the inability to soak it up. There was a feed yard or two that had some flooding and they killed a couple thousand head. Um, and wasn't there also some kind of cold event back in the winter that a bunch right. died? I mean, I, I'm not remembering that one so clearly, but the floods, the fire, the, the heat burst, like at, at some point, we have to take ownership of that. Not you and I, but you know, but we. No, as- I I have to take ownership of that because my great my great grandfather built one of the first feedlots in Ve- the the first feedlot in Vega, Texas. So no, that is me. Uh, I'm and and my my family are have been row cropping sugar beets. Um, my family on both sides have been in farming and ranching in the Texas Panhandle for at least uh, my great great somewhere back in the day um uh grandfather came from somewhere immigrated to run the ojo bravo division of the xit so we've been ranching in the in uh in west texas you know up until me uh since 1888 so yeah i have to take ownership of that so i absolutely have to put those those dead animals on my shoulder and do everything that i can moving forward uh to uh, as recompense for for that because if we don't take ownership of it if i don't take ownership of it who is who's going to not the insurance companies you not know, in the cba not, not five rivers no no so so though the only way to have any recompense of that is to try to is to do everything we can with every breath we have to create conditions for as many life forms as possible over the largest time span that we can. And the way to do that, going back to the beginning of this conversation, is as much herd effect as possible. It is the one tool that we have to create as much life as possible, you know, to create as much microorganism uh, life, to create as much bug life, to create as much uh, reptile, amphibious, bird life, um, so it's it, the only, the only thing that we can do to take responsibility for all of these horrors is to start and horrors. They are is to start is to really get good at herd effect, to get really, really fucking good at it and not, and to take it w- with a religious seriousness. And that is how we can create life for as many, many people. Uh, and I say people. I think probably because I have this disease where I view rocks the same as myself. Um, as <laughs> no, many as many life forms, uh, conscious or unconscious, depending upon our pri- primitive analysis thereof, uh, as possible. I like it. You know, in, increase biodiversity, increase the chances of success for other organisms. But not only the not only uh, the the width of biodiversity, but the depth of biodiversity. I want I want as many life forms per square meter as possible from below the soil up into the sky. So it's not just about the number of different species that you have. It's about the concentration of different species, because if that carbon cycle is moving really fast, that's lots of food moving into the next phase. And that's lots more things needing to cycle it and then more things needing to die. So not only do we need to be focused on the width of biodiversity, but also the depth of our biodiversity. Yes. Underground livestock. I mean, they're, they're far more important than the above ground. I, I got to pee real quick. I'll cool. be real quick. Oh, sometimes I, sometimes you just need a break. I feel you, bro. I feel you. So 
we talked you you said something about elon and going to mars and and uh terraforming broken ecology i think was a quote you used which is probably the title of this episode i've had a pinned tweet for quite a while on my on my twitter profile i think you know what i'm about ready to say no i don't I'm, I'm calling out elon like how are you going to colonize mars without planning to take ruminant animals with you you know we, we've talked about ultra processed food i know you don't eat a lot of it i try not to eat a lot of it it's for the it, it seems like almost every time i open up my news feed these days there's another article about how bad highly processed and ultra processed foods are for people but the really weird thing is it's not u.s-based media that's saying this stuff and it's not u.s-based research all the research is coming out of europe and the uk about how bad ultra processed foods are and how you know ultra processed foods refined grains refined white sugar are probably contributing to obesity diabetes and cancer and heart disease and all the other things that we've been dying of at increased rates since the 1950s. And U.S. media is just says nothing about it. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, my Spanish father-in-law out there, he's uh, 70 years old. Dude smokes like a chimney. He's going to live till he's 120. Like he, it's just like the, the Spanish diet is, you know, and you go over there and everything is better. The seafood's better. Um, it, from my experience, the, the meat was, was very, very good when I was over there. I mean, I don't have a lot of experience with that, but the, obviously the, the pastas and the grains are, are far better, uh, over there. Um, just, I, it, it, I think that the level of corporate capture we have in this co country is, is a level that far exceeds, um, the rest of the world. I think it's quickly, I think that's probably one of the things that the great Eurasian war is about is about extending that corporate capture over to the older cultures uh, on the, on the planet. You know, we really want to make sure that Europe is under our uh, influence instead of the influence of Russia, even though they share uh, a massive land base. Um, and, and also culturally um, it's way more human centric in in uh, Europe and also Australia, the the culture is way more about enjoying your life rather than this Puritan work ethic, endless ambition, uh, fill up your retirement account that seems to be pervasive throughout American culture. You know, they're just happy to walk, you know, walk to the bakery, walk to the butcher shop, you know, have a fiesta every two weeks where, you know, that complete with parades and shit. Um, and it's just so much more about, you know, enjoying the quality of life there. You know, here it's about this endless, endless cycle of more profit. More. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's just it's it's the more urbanized we become, the more it it happens and, and the more it sinks into our DNA, and except for a, a small portion of us who are rebelling from that urban vacuousness and putting ourselves back in a position where we can actually enjoy the sensory uh sensory input of the moment you know just to 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 just be with ourselves you know it's like there's there's no time to rest anymore there's no time to simply be 
there's no time or we haven't taught ourselves to do it. Um, you know, it's, uh, I, I had a bull, one of my Mashona bulls went lame like two weeks ago and he was lame for like 10 days and he spent that whole damn time just laying under a tree. And two weeks later he was up and fine. You know, it's like he gave himself adequate time to rest and chill. And he wasn't over there sitting there thinking about like all of the, you know, all the existential angst that you and I suffer through on, on a day-to-day basis. Like, Oh my God, what am I, what's my, what's my breed back going to be this year? Oh my God. I got to preg check these cows. Oh my God. It's like, I got to go to the dentist. You know, it's like all of that. Shit. <laughs> you know, oh, he's good. just chilling. Got to go catch a few and take into the processor next week. Well, I got to make sure I got all them sold. So I, cause I don't have enough room for them. If I don't. Right. And how, and, and what kind of things do I have to put in place to make sure that I can do that? You know, all of the, all of the various logistics, you know, we, we concern ourselves with logistics on a, on a level that the, the vast majority of, of uh, existence just doesn't really worry about. You know, it's, that's why fences work for cows. They go to the fence and then they're like, in most most cases, they're like, oh, there's a barrier here. Okay, I'll just go this way. You know, that's, it's, it's remarkable. I, you know, the, the American culture, it has like, it's got to be like a 65 or 70 year hang time where we are just operating on old machinery. In the 50s, when all of that wealth and all of that uh, material abundance first became available, food was still pretty damn good. So you could go to the grocery store and you could get all of these things and all of these new processed materials. Uh, and I say materials instead of food because that's what they are. Um, all of these new processed things were still okay. They were made out of good ingredients. You know, we still had some reasonable soil fertility. You know, cattle were still being fed uh, grass in some cases and corn that was a little bit higher in nutrient value probably than it is today. So food was better. You could get away with buying a pack of Nabiscos, you know, and but now we're we're still have that same uh, we still have that same belief set that we can still go to the and trust. We can trust the grocery store. We can believe what the government says. We can trust uh, our doctors to, to, to tell us, you know the truth all the time because they're out there doing the research you know we can we can believe what the media is saying we can you know and these are all functions of uh of a time that is that is no longer with us you know and so we we our our update period is very very slow and we're always way behind we're seeing the same thing obviously with our grazing practices you know and although i will say they are accelerating rapidly right now which is very very cool um you know thanks to a lot of leaders in the industry who are getting very old now which is going to be interesting to see uh who can come up to to take their place and uh continue pushing that message forward you know going beyond the pioneers into the early adopters into the the humans who can keep that momentum you know, going all the way back, obviously, to the Egyptian Alan Savory that we were talking about earlier. So, um, you know, it's, 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 we need to find a way it it's better. Well, I'll just say it's better. The faster we can update ourselves without throwing away 
good information or good practices, the, the better, you know, and I think, I think we're doing okay with that. And, and I have to say, um, I've had, I've, I've had a much more positive view of the future since our last podcast or our, our first several podcasts. I feel, I feel a lot more optimistic about the way things are going. Like, obviously there's a chance that we'll have massive die off and, you know, human humanity will enter a, a, a very difficult period, but you know, I think there's probably an equal chance that we'll figure out some way to, you know, uh, avoid massive catastrophe. And, um, ultimately my life has been better now that I've adopted a much more optimistic outlook. And, uh, it's, uh, certainly opened up a lot more opportunities, I think indirectly. Okay. Do you feel like subconsciously, <coughs> pardon me, it's all right. Do you feel like subconsciously our culture has a drive to, um, to outlive and delay the crash? Like it, on some level, do you think people understand that the system is failing and falling and they're just trying to survive survive as long as they can and delay the inevitable or or is something else going on like there's so many there's so many different factors kind of swirling around in the world starting to coalesce you know the the age of our the age of our culture the age of our government inflationary pressures do inflationary the cost of doing business rising cost of land, the falling value or the, you know, the static value of production that's not increasing with inflation, profit margins shrink, makes land ownership you know, harder and harder and harder. And, you know, you and I being, you know, direct to consumer grass fed beef guys, we don't, we don't feed at the subsidy trough, but it seems like everybody else in agriculture that's surviving has to. They have to feed at that subsidy trough, and it's a treadmill you can't get off of. Because nobody will tell you how to farm. But when you're way in debt to the bank and you've got to have crop insurance to make sure you can make your bank payment, your banker's going to tell you what you're going to be able to plant, and he's going to want to see your crop plan. So I think there's a lot of guys that will say, nobody can tell me how to farm. I'm a, I'm a lifelong Republican. Trump was the greatest thing ever. They're being told what to plant by their banker and their crop guy and their crop insurance guy and their crop consultant. They're being told what to plant, what to put on it, and when to do it. And, you know, we have the freedom. We can go graze however we want to. There's no grazing police going to come arrest you or me. If there was, I might, you know, I might have spent a couple nights in the lockup because, you know, pasture overused a little bit too much here or, you know, not not effectively used over there two points have been deducted from your license <laughs> i'm glad there's not grazing police if there was well they probably wouldn't bother me because they'd have a lot of other work to do before they'd come mess with me so this is why this is why throughout time they've had cultures that you know, every seven years or whatever they forgive debts you know, our culture doesn't have that you know we have we have bankruptcy which is kind of a Take poor version of that get off your record yeah exactly i mean it's like it's like yeah you can get you can go bankrupt but then you can't you know you can't borrow anything moving forward i'm sure there was some hangover from that in in previous cultures as well it's like well i just had to give i just had to forgive a very large debt from you jezediah like i'm not about to loan you turn around and loan you you know 
150 shekels or whatever. Um, I'm sure I mixed cultures and currencies there. I don't, I don't know, but, but I, but I'm sure, but, but to some degree we have to have some, some sort of forgiveness and then the, the absolute uh, tyranny of banks has to go away, especially banks that don't have to keep any money on hand. And especially since we don't really even use money at all anyway, it's all just pretend. Um, But uh, your original question was, does our culture subconsciously, is our culture subconsciously trying to outlive or uh, outweigh the crash? And um, what I would say is that the older I get, the more uh, I recognize that the gulf between people who are awake to some degree, and I hate to use this phraseology, but I don't have anything more sophisticated. The gulf between people who are awake and the gulf between people who are completely asleep, and those are the two ends of the spectrum, is enormously wide. It's enormously wide. And I think that there is a 10 to 15% uh portion of the population that's like oh this isn't working i got to do something different and those are the people who are on your tiktok insta your instagram homesteading you know who wants to move into the country in 20 acres and grow chickens and you know get your kids out of school like that's those people you know and they have their their consciousness has you know maybe is maybe is a little bit more unfettered than other people and i don't say this in a judgmental way i'm trying to do it in a very analytical way but the vast majority of people, and I say this because I think for a long time I was kind of uh, uh, overshadowed by this demon, even if they have some sort of subconscious understanding that things are going to go badly, are just going to party it out until they do. This is, I think this is one of the fundamental uh, uh, motivations I had for a, mu- for a music career that I was that I was really chasing hard from the time I was like 20 until I was 28. It's the reason I played guitar four to five hours a day. I thought it was because well, this is, it's because I love music. It's because um, this is what I want to do, but it's because I had this gut feeling that the world was going to end. I had graduated college in 2009 when there were no opportunities for anybody to do anything. And I was like, well, if I'm going to be fucked my entire life, which is what I think a lot of people feel, especially if you have a shit ton of student debt, then I'm just going to enjoy myself uh, until it all runs out, you know? Um, and that, and then, and then I just rationalized it away saying that, oh, it was because I really love music. So I thought, no, I didn't love music. I loved smoking weed and playing guitar and avoiding reality. Like that's what I loved to do. Um, and when I had a kid that all went to excuse the uh, phrase up in smoke. Um, and and motherfucker in the first two minutes of the podcast, like, I I guess everything is on the table at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, we, you know, it's, uh, this is going to be probably, probably one of our more fun episodes. I feel like in a way it's like the, the Joe Rogan, Duncan Trussell recurring conversation, just the different permutations thereof. But uh, wait, wait till I show up in your yard with all my equipment and furry costumes. Oh, that will be fun. That will be great. Can we please do that? Not in summer. (laughs) Definitely not in summer. Yeah, that's a great idea. Like I I have all the stuff to do outside off grid podcast. Like I can go to the cow pasture now and I can sit down with four people and do a podcast. Oh, that's awesome, dude. Have you done that yet? No, I haven't. We're we're working up to uh, trying to get trying to get some friends on the schedule. I've done a couple of tests and I've done a couple of tests and tests have turned out good. So we're going to do another 
another test and hopefully that'll make a good episode and um but no hopefully um hopefully over the next couple of weeks i'll get some deals hammering out with some sponsors and get a few bucks in the billfold that i can that i can blow on podcast stuff oh, yeah. um i want to get a, a tent like an easy up canopy that i can take with my big logo on it like african safari style yeah yeah, so I can show up with like you know a couple chairs, a table, and a box of junk, and this canopy, and just pop the canopy open, throw a table under it, some chairs, put all my stuff, hook up microphones, and go. Put put all your sponsored stuff like arranged carefully in the background, like. Yeah, yeah, that's you know I'm gonna try. I want to update the studio down here, make it to where I can I can have guests down here in the studio. Get change out the green screen, mm. like put a shelf behind me and have some of my knickknacks and stuff on the shelf, you know, some of my cool hats, some of the memor- you know, memorabilia that I've, uh, people have given me or I've accumulated over the years. Just trying, we're, we're not making any major changes. Just trying to, just trying to take things to the next level. Nice. Nice. I want to bring it full circle real quick about the, the, the uh, um, the, you know, tr- transitioning from music into uh, going back to my ranching roots. And I think but the thing I want to, I, I want to say that because so I don't look like a total uh, stoner loser. It's like, <laughs> you know, and uh, which to some degree, that's what I was in my early twenties. Um, and, you know, when I had a kid, suddenly the, the future that was very nihilistic before subconsciously nihilistic was, you know, worth living for, you know, and, and, and suddenly there, I, I, I searched for meaning. I, I had some sort of, I had a, a massive psychological shift and suddenly looking for meaning and purpose was sort of paramount to my existence. And, um, that's sort of, and it's funny because I never was interested in being on social media with my music and never was interested in putting myself out there. And even when I only had 10 cows and was weirdly moving them around 10 to uh, four times a day in very conspicuous areas in central Oregon, you know, I was still interested in putting up a TikTok, and that thing took off wildly, which I think is a great indication that that's what I was supposed to be doing. It was much more imbued with meaning and purpose than my music in any way, um, and has been a hugely important part of of my uh, uh, growth in the in this industry, obviously, and uh, has cer- certainly given given a lot of meaning and purpose and opened a lot of doors. And that's actually one of the things I want to talk about. Remember when TikTok was awesome? When it was like you and me and um, Reverend Wild Ranch, yeah, like was it was just three years ago. Yeah, it was like March of two twenty. It was just like us, and it was just like us absorbing hate from conventional agriculture people, like all day, you know, and just saying all this wild stuff you know, on this crazy Chinese app. It was like the Wild West, you know. It's it's really calm. It's really tamed itself out, and and everybody's uh, growth in on the app has just like it stopped just completely stopped but we were going bananas there for a second those are the good old days man yeah i I was thinking about i was thinking about the good old clock app last night and clock app. twitter's a legacy not twitter facebook's a legacy platform yeah instagram's a legacy platform and they're you know and and youtube legacy platform they're trying to innovate and copy what what they think has made tiktok successful but what has made TikTok successful is, is, is the algorithm. I mean, that's what really what's driving it and what content that it shows you and how it shows you content. And, you know, I kind of understand on a basic level of how it works. Like, 
you know, everybody has a user profile based on your data, based on what you've liked, who you follow, and what hashtags you follow. So the algorithm sorts all that out and starts displaying you content. And what I think is great is, you know, you can make some really engaging content and hit two or three different audiences by hashtags and get them sucked into your page and get them sucked into your thing. But what TikTok represents to me right now, and I was kind of thinking about this last night, is it represents the velocity of information. It represents people's truth. Because, and those are the videos that, that do really well, is when somebody gets on there and speaks their truth about thing, whether it's a thing that happened to them or a thing that's happening in the world. It's people passionately speaking their truth. It's also, I mean, you hear anything that's going to be on mainstream media tomorrow is on TikTok right now. Right. Somebody on there talking about it right now. And once one person's talking about it, there'll be 10 people talking about it and you'll know everything there is to know before the mainstream media puts their slant out tomorrow. And it's, it's also dangerous. You know, there's also a danger in platforms like that, that, you know, any, anything that can be used for good can also be misused for evil. And I thought of this earlier, you were, we were throwing around some words and, you know, and, and, and some languages that are not as sophisticated as English. Okay. The word tool and weapon are the same thing. Hmm. Argument and war are the same word. So language, language has a tremendous power to shape thought. And the spread of ideas and information you know, we were promised when with the internet, information will be free. Information will be free. Well, information's free as long as you're willing to give up your data to get it and your personal information, it seems like. And that's, you know, it, that's true for TikTok too. You know, they're they're 100% mining your information to try to sell you stuff. Right. Yeah, and also to some degree, it's it's free. information is free, but you have to put out the work to process it, you know. That's, that's certain. And, and as you should, you know, I'm certainly grateful for the opportunity to do it. And it's really interesting how, you know, before we had TikTok and we had this, this hyper velocity of information accessibility, uh, we had nothing to juxtapose the legacy media with. So now we see all, we see 10 different perspectives on TikTok about an event that's happening. We get to make, process it on our own, uh, take away our own uh, perspective. And then the next day, you see it on some sort of, you know, like New York Times is like RFK Jr. says vax is misinformation about vaccines. And it's like, oh, I actually saw what he said yesterday. Yeah, that's, and that's not really that's bullshit. You know, it's and we see that with, you know, countless things. And so their slant is it only works on old people now. It's as we were discussing previously, like we like the, the jig is up. Now they're going to try they're going to try to regulate um and in Canada, by the way, they just passed a, a regulation that says you can do that. They can they can regulate your podcast to ensure that 
30% of your content or something like this, I may have this wrong, but it's basically right. 30% of your contest attack, your, your content is um, promoting Canadian centric information or something like that. And obviously that's going to be interpreted to like, if you have anti-Canada messages, you have to take it down, you know? So suddenly they're going to have people self-policing anything that might be like anti-Canada. You know, and I think the United States had something that went through kind of like that. It, it like uh, passed one of the houses, uh, one of the, uh, but not the other, something like that. Passed the, passed the House, but didn't pass the Senate, something like that. Um, and, but yeah, ultimately, we have, we have that information and we have the ability to process it ourselves in a way that uh, we've never, we haven't had in a long time. Dude, it's, dude, it is mind blowing to watch my 70 year old dad try to to lean who is a doctor by the way to try to lean on uh what he learns on npr and i'm like dad I'm like no it's like this government funded propaganda exactly it's just it's bullshit and i can't tell him that you know i can't I, you know like he and i just he's like, been a trusted source of news for 50 years ever since i was in residency in 1963 you know it's like, <laughs> whatever you know it's like but I, I love my dad i love my dad that's my dad, like my the dad's seven most dangerous words in agriculture we have always done it this way Right. I mean, certainly uh, th- th- there is to some some degree of truth to the, to the to the notion that, you know, tradition is the answer to problems that we forgot about. Yeah, that's true. That's why we always need to be existing with one foot in what works and the other foot in something new. You know, we uh, they call that the zone of proximal growth. You know, so we have to be uh, existing in the zone of proximal growth all the time. And that requires us to be processing our in, our own information. How do you know that when you're in the zone of proximal growth? Well, if you're performing an activity, it's when you lose consciousness of self. That's how you know you're in the, the, the zone of proximal growth. But when you're, when you're analyzing an endeavor, you know you're in the zone of, of proximal growth, I think primarily by that slight feeling of discomfort that you have as you move into... Uh, a, a bigger version of yourself. And you can't do that without the ability to process information. So I hope that, and, and I think that's maybe one of the things that all of these social media platforms are giving us, particularly TikTok are giving us is reawakening our ability to process and analyze information that has lay, that has uh, laid dormant because of the spoon fed mush of propaganda that we've gotten from the mainstream media uh over the last over the last 50 years um so you know i i think that you know as you said certainly some evil can be done and will be done with regard to the uh, availability and the speed of information that's moving fast today but i think a great deal of of positivity is coming out out of it for sure yes yes positive change i think and that's you know and we like like you and like you and I, like you and me and Reverend Wild Ranch and Trevor when he's not acting like Donald Trump, um, <laughs> and and several other people who are you know have have big followings on on social media have done more for the regenerative movement than all of the land grant universities in this country combined, and I believe that fully. 
I think there are there are hundreds of there are billions of dollars worth of PhDs out there who only exist in their own little system and go to their own little conferences and go have their own little farm talks with the people who wear the same hats that they do and are have done less for the proliferation of the regenerative movement than a bunch of assholes on a social media platform just making shit uh, randomly, just pointing a camera and talking about stuff. And the beautiful thing about that is like everything on social media is peer reviewed. All of it. Every, every video that you put out, every video that I put out, that's why our grazing has gotten so much better, so much faster than people who are out there just reading whatever research comes out of the university that's funded by, you know, whatever. Um, or, or just trying to figure it out by yourself in a vacuum. Exactly. Exactly. Because you have people out there poking holes in the weakest part of your argument all the time. And so anything that's left is the resilient, coherent, congruous uh, 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 strong remains of your of your grazing philosophy, and if you do this over enough years, then and you test it, you get critiqued, you go back, you test it, you get critiqued, you go back, you end up with something that works pretty goddamn good. And I think that's where we're at with social media, and, and that you know that's uh, uh, that I think that's really true actually that that uh, all social media is peer reviewed. You know, it's maybe peer reviewed by people who aren't. Who, who don't have uh, a, a, an acronym after their name, but but it's peer-reviewed by the wisdom of the masses, which I think is probably more valuable. And it gets more people involved in the conversation. It gets more people uh, actively thinking about it. And it actually creates a cool factor and a sex factor that is not available in the land-grant universities because there are personalities attached to it. People follow personalities. People don't follow brands. You know, I, I people don't go. You know, people don't follow like the Texas A and M. You know, TikTok account. Really, there's nothing interesting that comes out of that. There's nothing interesting that comes out of the Chevrolet TikTok account. There's nothing interesting that comes out of any of these big brands. And they just treat it like a goddamn commercial. Like people want to follow personalities. They want to get to know the weird little twerks of the people that they're following. It just so happens that the people that they're following have this obsession with some various thing, whether it's, you know, um, uh, makeup or old guitars or grazing or whatever. And it's all peer reviewed all over the, and over the, over the longer, the longer the time horizon that you peer review it with this huge mass of people, the better it's going to be. And I think that's one of the reasons we've seen this huge influx in regenerative agriculture is because not only are more people interested, but more people are testing it, more people are critiquing it. So it's getting better and better and better. Like, uh, Ooh, I, I'm going to have to stop right there because, uh, I, I think that that's just a great place. To stop. I felt myself almost, uh, talking shit on some other people. So I'm going to, I'm going to not do that. Okay. That's uh, so organizations. Yeah. And so a, a couple things that came to mind, you know, it's one thing to see somebody making a viral video talking about something cool or talking about a product that they bought and, and it's in a sponsored or an affiliate deal. I'll watch those a lot of times. But if it's a Chevrolet ad, scroll past. If it's sponsored content from a company, I am going to scroll past you on social media probably 99 times out of 100. Because if I wanted to, if I, if I want to know your propaganda, I'll come to your site and look at it. Like I will go to your website and look at it. I promise. Like 
Chevy, Ford, Dodge, Jeep. You know, yeah, I look at your websites because I like to keep track of what trucks are around. Okay. And it's so easy to hide propaganda behind a brand, and it's much more difficult to do it in a personality. Like, we all have our personal slants. We all have our biases. Everybody knows that, you know, yes. but but it becomes nefarious, malevolent, and insidious when it's behind a big recognized brand, you know, Dodge, Yellowstone Dutton Ranch. <laughs> it's like, okay, whatever. And you're and you're right. It's like that shit's boring because there's because you're interacting with an abstraction when it's a person like it's a person like that's what we're built to do. We're built to interact with a person. We're built to hear a story. We're built to see what a person is saying. That's way better, way cooler, way more exciting. Um, and and and, you know, like uh, of the top 100 TikTok accounts or Instagram accounts, 98 of them are people, you know, two of them are brands. I mean, and there's a there's a couple good brands that have really great social media managers for some platforms. Like I think Wendy's Twitter is always lit. Um, Oklahoma Department of Wildlife, like whoever runs their Twitter account, is awesome. If you because don't, it has a human like personality, right? And it like get it says stupid things like that a peep that a person would, and it's not just public service announcements. Like nobody wants to see that. Like there, there's a reason you have to pay to sponsor public service announcements because nobody's willingly going to go watch that content. I get it. You know, being engaging is hard. Like I struggle on social media to make engaging posts that are positive. Like anybody can make a negative post and get some mileage out of it. Anybody can talk crap on something else, a system, a thing, whatever. Tell somebody they're doing it wrong. It's easy to get attention that way. It's much harder to get attention asking questions or saying, this is what I'm doing and this is why it works for me. And I think that's why, you know, your concept of quote peer review is important. And in some ways, you know, Reddit's been around for a long time and Reddit was really cool because it was like a bulletin board, like Mm. an old forum, an old BBS. But instead of everything being in chronological order, like old threads, you know, comments get upvoted. So those get displayed first. So the more useful stuff is bumped towards the top of the thread. It's, you know, a lot more easily accessible, but everybody else's opinion was still there. And you could just see how popular it was with the community. Right. So TikTok is a lot like that. TikTok is basically that for video format, for short video format. As a user, you get to interact with this content. Okay, did I like it? Did I watch it? Was it meaningful? Was it useful? And, you know, the algorithms, you know, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, they all work this way. But it's, you know, what level of interaction did you do with this piece of content? Did you watch it all the way through? Did you make a comment? Did you leave an emotion react? Did you share it with your friends? Like, and all of these things have weight. And the more of those things are done, the more the more weight you get and the more people get to see your stuff. Right. And I think that's, that's really important. I mean, it. very democratic. I have worked for years to build a small loyal following on Facebook. And the amount of followers I got on TikTok in the first year blew my mind. Like it just, it blows my mind that I can make a video about nothing and 3000 people will watch it. I can make the most thought out 
post on Facebook that should test well, should perform well, and it'll get like four shares and 150 impressions. So I kind of wonder like, you know, where's my time being best spent on social media? You know, where are those attention hours best being spent? Are they best being spent getting my, you know, getting my thoughts and ideas in front of the widest audience possible? Breaking into many, as many new circles as possible. I, I, it's hard to do on, on the legacy, on the legacy platforms. Yeah, it's definitely hard to do on the legacy platforms. And plus, you know, the, the, if you look at the forward projections of what's going to matter, it's the, it's the people on the legacy platforms. I mean, they matter right now. Only old people use Facebook with, with the veracity that, you know, we did when, when it first came out. Um, and no offense, old people. Um, but, uh, it's the the people who will be running the show in 20 years they're on tiktok you know people who will be running the show in 30 years they're on tiktok right now you know and and as things continue to evolve they'll be on uh whatever new thing comes out and whatever you know whatever virtual reality shit uh we we stumble ourselves into you know i mean that's that's going to be profoundly important. I think that there was a there was a bank or something out there that was lending, um, the like opening accounts or lending credit lines or something to Instagram and TikTok um, influencers, and they waited. Uh, it was twenty times more uh, weight to each Instagram follower than they did to a TikTok follower. And that's probably based on how engaged they actually are, how much more likely they are to spend money, how much more likely they are to, you know, proliferate your message. So that, I, I don't know where I found that. I'm sure you could Google that, but that's kind of how I weight my Instagram versus my TikTok importance in terms of making that decision of where's the most important place to to create uh, create content. But luckily, it's the same damn thing for me. I can just make a video in CapCut you know, um, that's the, that's the program that I use to make the video. Then I'll download it, then throw it up on Instagram, write a caption, copy the caption, then throw it up on TikTok, paste the caption, then throw it up on LinkedIn, paste the caption and, and call it good. You know, and that, that's, I mean, I don't treat any of those differently. Maybe if I was a more refined or sophisticated person, I would treat each of them differently, but like, this is me, like, this is what I do. This is, this is the thing that I'm going to do. And what I am going to spend your time and energy. Right. And, and, but I do recognize that it's very, very important. And I have also been able to identify that for me, what matters is not necessarily like there are a ton of people like, like I'll, I'll, I'll make a confession to you. I don't give a fuck about soil, soil health. Like I don't care about it. It doesn't right. matter to me because if you graze properly, soil health will take care of itself. I am not interested in the minutia of what's happening under the soil. I'm a firm believer that, that if you do everything in your power, which is to affect what happens above the ground, the below ground part will take care of itself. And no matter how much you know about what's happening above or below ground, there's always way more than you're aware of. So, so from that perspective, I am not going to get on TikTok and be like, there's the soil. It's good for it to be healthy, you know, because we see a huge proliferation of people making that really basic low hanging fruit content ever since we started moving our cows at once every three days we've seen a huge increase in biodiversity you know on uh on instagram or tiktok or whatever so the thing that's been really important for me is like have an original insight if you have an original insight 
that that maybe you heard somewhere or you put it together through synthesizing other pieces of information. But if you have an original insight that is relevant to your life and that might be relevant to other people's lives, um, then then use that to be a vehicle for teaching. Like for me, the one that I used the other day, it's it's probably been said before, but what I was what I recognize is like this: these dung beetles are in one fell swoop are 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 performing multiple functions. So the, and so I realized that the more functions that one activity provides, or or or, or um, more functions that one activity. Uh, I, let's say provides the more functions that one activity serves, the more ele elegant of a solution it is. And the more elegant a solution, the more effective it is going to be. And those are going to be the solutions that stand the test of time. So that was the original insight. And what did I do? I used it to talk about dung beetles. Now there are plenty of people out there who probably made videos about dung beetles. Like this is a dung beetle. It eats poop and it puts it under the ground. Like that's great. But what is that saying? And, you know, the original insight there is that it is performing a very, elegant sophisticated activity that creates a positive output in a number of uh, at a number of levels of analysis and so like there's a difference between this is a dung beetle it is important for soil health and the original uh or or semi-original uh insight that i can add to that because if i'm just making a video about soil health i'm not even there there's no me i'm replaceable by any other number of ranchers or farmers or soil health people by just relaying information. Like, so not only do I have to have my personality, not also, not also, not only do I have to have the information, but I also need to add an original insight. And if you are using your brain properly and being sufficiently in the moment, you ought to have several of these original insights per day. And the second that you do, make a video about it. And the more people who do that, the more good information will will come out, and so that's that's been my trick for um, for social media. Is like the 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 more original your insight, the more that you can add that insight into something relevant that's happening. That's what that's what talking heads are supposed to do. But all they do instead of adding original insight is provide some sort of slant or propaganda or to satisfy. The, the power structures that currently exist. So original insight, I think, is possibly the, the missing piece in the legacy media that is being provided in, in TikTok and Instagram and the particularly um, salient accounts. So in summation, I don't give a fuck about soil health. Okay. I mean, I, I, I see your point. But we got to wrap up, man. Where can people find you? Uh, uh, just look in the sky. I'm all around you. Like, I'm like, uh, I'm like Mufasa and the Lion King. I will never, I will never not be with you. But for a more conventional answer, fire and salt on TikTok, fire and salt beef on Instagram, fire and salt.com. Um, and, uh, hello at fire If you want to send me an email. Very cool, man. I appreciate your time today. Oh man. It's been a lot of fun. All right. You got anything you want to, uh, you want to close this out? Uh, remember that your death is coming very quickly and enjoy your life. All right, that's it. Have a good week. Goodbye. Yeah. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out the Q&A and the polls on Spotify. 
Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.